open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 7 to 15. We are in a sermon series on Matthew that we're calling The King Has Come. It's kind of Matthew's emphasis. Here is Jesus and he is your king, whether you recognize it or not. And in the middle of this powerful book, we have a sermon It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon given by Jesus. So I am preaching someone else's sermon over the past couple weeks and for the next few weeks. So it's like a series within a series. So we're looking at this idea of the Sermon on the Mount being about kingdom living. What does it mean to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? How does that look? How does our righteousness look? What does that even mean to be righteous in this kingdom? In the middle of this sermon, one of his main points in chapter 6, he goes to, do not be like the hypocrites. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And we talked about that last week. What is a hypocrite? And we said it's not so much acting in a way that isn't in line with what you believe as it is acting for the wrong audience. That's the way Jesus is using the word. You might truly, sincerely believe, but if you're doing your acts of righteousness, if you're living your Christian life so that other people will take notice, if that's your highest goal, then you are a hypocrite. The audience of all we do for Christ is to be Christ or God, our Father. And Matthew emphasizes, or Jesus emphasizes throughout this passage, that your Father sees And in the middle of this passage where he's talking about our acts of righteousness, he has this little, I guess you would call it an aside. Because he kind of breaks his pattern. There's a very strong pattern as he's going through. Be careful not to do this like the hypocrites. Do this instead. Your heavenly father sees. And then he gets to the topic of prayer in Acts chapter 6. And he says, be careful not to pray like the hypocrites. This is verse 5. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. So he says, don't pray so that the world will see. Pray so that God would see. We talked about it last week. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to pray in public. Charlie didn't just break any rules by coming up here and praying for us. That's different. Okay. But he does say, be careful who you're praying to. Who is your ultimate audience? But then he breaks his pattern and he says in verse 7, do not pray like the pagans. And we talked about that a little bit. And the babbling just going on and on and on and on. Just so that we will be heard. Because maybe if we say enough, God will you know, get irritated and answer. Or we'll maybe say the right thing that will trigger something in God and he'll answer. And it's in this context that Jesus then goes in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. And he gives us what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. How should we pray? How to pray. This goes so well with Bill's class in Sunday school on spiritual disciplines. And obviously prayer is a big part of spiritual disciplines. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, sometimes we approach prayer like like a teenage boy trying to ask out a girl that he likes. You know, um, it's me. Oh, you already knew that. That was dumb. Uh, You know, I just, uh, I'm not really, uh, you're really amazing. Um, 
but you already knew that too. Uh, oh, I'm really messing this up. I guess what I want to say is, you know, I wonder, I mean, if maybe, if, if you kind of want to, I mean, it's really up to you. You don't have to. Oh, this isn't coming out right. Forget it. <laughs> and we walk away from prayer because we're so afraid of messing it up. I think other times we approach prayer like we're performing Shakespeare on a stage. I've, I've always thought it interesting throughout my ministry career, people that I would meet in the hallway, you know, pastors or people in the, the congregation that are going to pray on Sundays, and you meet them and you talk about football and, hey, what's up, and great, and everything's super casual, and then they get up to pray, dearest and most heavenliest God. And you're like, who are you? Where did you come from? God. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and every once in a while we went to uh, Moody Church, and Erwin Lutzer, phenomenal guy, right? Uh, just great guy, great pastor, great preacher, great art, uh, not artist, author, that's it. But he always used that, he always said God that way. God sticks with you. Dearest and mostest heavenliest God, thou art the most supreme and forthcoming and transcendentalistest. Thou reignest exaltation righteously in heavenly stuff. And it's like we think if we just use really big words, God will be so impressed. He'll just have to answer, or at least we won't embarrass ourselves or embarrass him. These are two extremes, and and I, I hope you find them humorous, but I think if you think about your own approach to prayer, sometimes we will tend toward one of those. We try to impress God through our words, or, or we're just so embarrassed that we're not going to get it right that we just give up. Now, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. But I want you to understand, if you have a heart to reach out to your heavenly Father, just pray. You'll do fine. This will help you, but just pray. You'll do fine. Now, the context here is that Jesus, is a, or that Matthew has presented Jesus as this king who has come. He's going to talk about who Jesus is. He's given us some of his preaching. He'll tell more. Ultimately, this all leads up to the cross and the resurrection. This is our king. Follow him. Trust him. Then the Sermon on the Mount is who is living the righteous life. And the subtext to that is, and who needs to repent. And ultimately, if we're reading the Sermon on the Mount correctly, I believe the answer to the question, who needs to repent, is everybody. No one is righteous, as Paul says, not even one. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me, or I'm sorry, to the Lord's Prayer. Let me read this in a little bit of the context. I'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you need, knows what you need, rather, before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There is an order to this prayer. 
there are two main sections that teach us so much. The first is, verses 9 through 10, a complete focus on God. That's the starting point of prayer. We don't come to God just, me, 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 I need this, I need this, please give me what I want. We come to God saying, you are God. That's the starting point of prayer. Then we move to us. Our needs find their fulfillment and we find our proper perspective on our needs when we keep first the priority on who God is and on his greatness. God first, then us. And he starts in verses 7 through 9 with how not to pray. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the pagans. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And we talked last week about how the pagans prayed. They believed, and the pagan was somebody that worshipped another god or goddess other than the one true god. And so you can get into the Greek cults, you can get into the ancient cults. Um, Some of those, there are some similarities with religions today, but there was this profound sense that you had to manipulate your deity. You had to be so fervent in what you did. So it was not uncommon in certain religious settings for people to hurt themselves, cut themselves, just to show how passionate they were. It wasn't uncommon for them to just go on and on and on, babbling, sometimes nonsensical things, just to get their gods or goddesses' attention. And they actually thought that their gods and goddesses were so busy sometimes that that they were distracted. And so they had to get their attention and get their focus. Now, to us today, that that sounds silly, I I hope. As as godly, Bible-believing Christians, that should sound a bit silly, But people still struggle with that today. Why should God see me? And look at that phrase. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Man, wouldn't that change our prayer life right there? Prayer life's... Praying to God is not like writing in a diary where you've got to update the whole thing before you can get to whatever you wanted to write about. Maybe I'm the only other one that struggles with that. Happens when you only write like once every five or ten years. We don't come to God and say, oh, I just need to fill you in on what's going on in my life. Like, he knows. He knows more than you know about what's going on in your life. I guarantee. He is the all-powerful, sovereign God, and yet he knows your greatest and deepest need. Even the needs you are unaware of. And so, he says then, this then is how you should pray with an understanding that God already knows you're not updating him, you're not trying to get his attention, you're not trying to convince him of anything. Prayer, then, is an act of worship. Worship. To focus our hearts on who God is and declare his glory. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that you should memorize and recite this? A lot of church traditions do that. A lot of church traditions, you go to the worship services and they're going to recite the Lord's Prayer. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus meant this as a pattern of prayer, not necessarily to be the only prayer that we are supposed to recite. So we need to dig in and say, what exactly is he talking about and how do we pray like that? The other thing I think that is interesting 
is, is that Jesus is trying to push his people away from meaningless repetition in prayer. Keep on babbling like the pagans. And sometimes I wonder in traditions where they're reciting the Lord's Prayer, are they really thinking about it? Are they really focusing on, on what the Lord's Prayer is and what's being said? Or are they just trying to get the whole debtors and debtors and trespassers and getting that right? You know, There's always a giggle point in the Lord's Prayer when you recite it. You get to that point and everybody has their different transitions and people or uh, translations and people kind of laugh about that. But the point is, Are you praying to God the Father according to the way that Jesus has taught us to pray? One final emphasis before we move on from this passage. This, then, is how you should pray. You should pray. He's assuming that, right? Jesus isn't teaching on the importance of prayer here. He's assuming you've got that already. And I think sometimes we've already skipped that in our lives. I was thinking about it. There was one passage, and I should have looked it up. I apologize. But Jesus, I think it's at the funeral of Lazarus. He says, he's pre-praise. And he says, I I, I didn't say this for their benefit, God, but for yours. Or I didn't say this for your benefit, God, because you already hear me. I said it for theirs. It's like Jesus already knows. He thinks the very thoughts of the Father because he's Jesus, the Son of God. If anybody had no need to pray whatsoever, it would be Jesus Christ. And yet scripture is filled, the gospels are filled with times where Jesus spent lengthy, extended periods in prayer, often completely overnight, praying. Jesus believed in prayer. This then is how you should pray. And so, let's get into the text here. Our Father. This phrase right away would have blown away his Jewish listeners. To personally address God as your Father. It's so common to us today that we don't understand how revolutionary it was to them. They had a concept of God being their great, almighty, heavenly father, the great Yahweh who called them into existence. But but they more likely would have talked about Abraham as their father. They were of the household of Abraham, which God had chosen, but he was way up there and they were way down here. And so for Jesus to start by saying, our father is amazing, it emphasized the, emphasizes the closeness of the relationship we have with God through Jesus, his son. In Christ, as Paul talks about elsewhere, we are adopted into God's family. We become his children. And again, we think of that in terms of the warm fuzzy and the niceness of it, which is true, and that's good. There's a closeness emphasized there. But in their culture, it was more than just that. This was your future. Your father's household was your future. Your father's household was your identity. Your father's household was your position in the world. All your social standing, all of your identity was tied up in who your father was. So for Jesus to teach his followers to pray, our father is amazing. And I love that he's already said that our father is already aware and involved in whatever we're praying about. So he moves then from our father, this wonderful statement of closeness, to in heaven. These two things are almost like opposites. Because to call him our Father in heaven is to say that he is so great and powerful and sovereign and beyond us. 
Heaven, according to Matthew's gospel, and really according to the scriptures, is not some place out there beyond the stars. It's not somewhere around Jupiter or something. It's it's not out in space where dead people, the good ones, go uh, when they die. It's not just out there. Heaven is the kingdom of God. It is the perfect place of God's presence. That's what heaven is in Scripture. And so wherever God is present and his people are saved by his son and his will is being done, God's kingdom is present. And so Jesus reminds us, you are praying to your father who is close and has this deep relationship with you, but he is also completely other than you and greater than you. Hold these two things together. I think in their culture, they tended to overemphasize the heavenliness of God. He is beyond them and out there and great. Sometimes I think in our culture, we tend to overemphasize the fatheriness of God, if I can use that word. He's just here and he's our buddy and he's our shoulder to cry on and lean on. Let's hold these two things together. Let one inform the other. God is both our father and who is in heaven. We need to start our prayer by understanding our audience is God. And he is our father who is in heaven. And then he moves on and says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be kept holy, to be set apart, to be understood as holy, to be revered, to be worshipped. Hallowed be your name. It's much more than just hoping people won't use God's name as a curse word. It's the name was the identity. It was the person. In Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. The psalmist here is saying, God, I want all eyes to be on you, not on me. I want all praise to be on you, Father, not on me. I want all glory to go to you. And all of this is through your name. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, hallowed be your name. It is praying that God's glory is known and praised and manifest in this world. Just think of the greatness of the beginning of this prayer. But he's not done. Verses 9 and 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we talked about heaven, so also is God's kingdom. God's kingdom is his perfect reign. God's will being carried out perfectly in this world. And that perfect reign will not come. The answer to this prayer will not completely be fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns. But the answer to this prayer has broken into this world because Jesus Christ has already come. So we live in this in-between time. Christ has come and he talks about God's kingdom is here. It is present. And every time the gospel is preached, every time somebody accepts Jesus as their savior, the gospel spreads, the kingdom spreads, and the world is changed because kingdom people live out kingdom lives. But we do so in a sinful world. And that will not change until Christ returns. The prayer here, is not just to change the world so that sinners will act less sinful. That's good. It's helpful. But it is not ultimately beneficial. The prayer, when Jesus says, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that people will be changed by God so that their sins will be forgiven by God so that their lives will then demonstrate the reign and the glory of God. The answer to this prayer is people being saved. That's the kingdom that comes. Praying for God's kingdom and for his will to be done is a lot like Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be arrested. He's about to face this incredible trial. He's about to suffer greatly. And what does he pray? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's a kingdom prayer. And so here we have in this section a focus on who God is and what God wants. So let me ask you, think about your own prayer life. How do you start? Do you just jump in? God, I really need this. God, I, I, I just, I really want this. Or so-and-so is really suffering and struggling. And Please, those things are important. We're going to get to them in a second. But to just pause for a moment and say, God, you are God. You are great and powerful and you are with me and you care about what's going on in my life and the lives of those around us. And God, ultimately what I want is not my will because my will is way too small. God, what I want is your will to be done in all things, ultimately. It's only after we have prayerfully kept God as our highest priority that then we can truly turn to our own needs. And so we get to the second topic in verses 11 through 13, personal petition prayer. Now, again, I want to be careful. Sometimes when you split up a sermon and you divide things into chunks like this, it's easy to like move on and forget. Don't forget as we talk about personal petition, that's where we ask God for stuff for ourselves. Don't forget what came before. That's the context. That's always the overarching context of the rest of this. It is the glory of God, the will of God, and the kingdom of God. So all of this finds its meaning under that umbrella. And he says in verses 11 through 13, give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread. We have a a devotional that you can use. I think it's a little booklet. It's called our daily bread. That's not what he's talking about. It's helpful. That wasn't around back then. Our daily bread. There's a lot of indications in the gospel about day workers. People that came to work at a certain hour and then another group that was hired the next hour and then the master at the end of the day pays them what he wants to pay. And people are like, oh, it's unfair. But they didn't ask, why did one guy start at one hour and another guy at another hour and another guy at another hour? They didn't ask that. Why? Because they understood that. There's things about people going to work for a master just for one day. Well, what kind of career is that? They didn't ask about that because they understood that. You see, for them, you worked today for the food that you hope to eat today. And you prayed that tomorrow you were able to work tomorrow for the food you hope to eat tomorrow. And if you got up and you went into the town and nobody hired you to work in their fields that day, you didn't eat that day and neither did your family. So now go to this phrase and understand that that's the context. Give us today our daily bread. 
I have shelves filled with daily bread. Cabinets. Cans. A nice electric refrigerator and freezer filled with daily bread. We don't think in terms of daily bread. We're so separated from the concept of our day-to-day inherent needs as human beings because technology has stepped in to help us. And, And that's good, but by removing us from our daily needs, it gives us this sense that, oh, I got this. I'm in control. I can manage this. I just run to Wegmans. There are all these. I just stock up the fridge. I use Amazon now for a lot of my my shopping. I don't even have to worry about it. Every month, stuff just shows up on the doorstep. I mean, think about how far removed we have become. And I'm not preaching against that, okay? I want to be careful. What I am preaching is that we need to be careful that we understand our day-to-day lives, whether the food was made by a farmer and then shipped to Wegmans and then we went and picked our favorite and then we stuck it in a fridge and when we felt like it, we went through it in the microwave, we still depend on God for our daily bread. We need to understand that because it's easy to forget. And there are times that God allows things in our lives, that he pulls back our control. And he says, you're not nearly as in control as you think you are. A pandemic that could spread through the world, that can't happen. That, that would never happen in our society. And God goes, you're not nearly as in control. My spouse could get sick. Someone I love could go through a difficult time. And God's saying, you're not really as in control as you think you are. And at the same time, he's saying, trust me. This is your daily bread. Trust me. Do we come and ask God, recognizing we have basic needs, and he is the ultimate supplier of those needs? And then he goes on, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. There are many different translations of this passage. Debts, debtors, trespasses, sins. I think according to Matthew's gospel in this context, debts is probably the best translation of the original Greek word, but they're all pretty much the same. But the idea at the heart of what Matthew is saying, what he's recording here is that we owe something. That That's inherent in the word that he chooses. We, we, there's a penalty to be paid. That's why he uses the concept of debt. I think Paul really encompasses this well in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Paul's point in this passage and Jesus' point are really one and the same. You're a sinner. And, and just as we can talk about basic physical needs like daily bread, so can we talk about the most deepest, basic, fundamental spiritual need, which is not enlightenment. It's not some feeling. It is to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus is ultimately asking us to pray for the salvation that he is about to bring later in his life. Forgive us our debts. And forgive those as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm going to come back to that because Jesus comes back to that. And he says there is a link between our understanding of our own forgiveness and our ability to forgive others. So I'm going to hold off on that till verses 14 and 15. But next he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As we pray about our most basic physical needs, and we pray about our most basic spiritual needs, and we do this regularly, consistently, often in our lives, Because we need the reminder. God already knows, right? We need the reminder. It's a check on our own heart. Jesus then says also to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is a spiritual battle going on. In, through, above, and beyond all the physical things we see in this world, there is also that which is unseen. Satan is out there trying to wreak havoc on the people created in the image of God. He is out there to undermine God's glory, to diminish it through everything that he does. And Jesus says that we are to trust God in this battle and to pray to God for his guidance. And so he says to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now this is hard. Because we know from elsewhere that God does take us through times of testing and refining. And that's God's purpose in that is to strengthen us and to teach us that we might grow more dependent on him. However, in those times, Satan has another agenda. He wants us to give in to temptation and to sin. And I don't think what Jesus is asking here, because it would be out of line with the rest of Scripture, I don't think what he's saying is to pray for an easy life with no struggle or temptation. I don't think that's what lead us not into temptation means. He'll later on tell his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He tells all of us then at the end, as he ascends into heaven, go, make disciples. Where are you going? Well, in a world that's not going to believe in Jesus. So he's not saying pray for an easy life. What we are praying is for God's protection and sustaining power in those moments that we would not fall into temptation, slip into temptation, give into temptation. I think the emphasis there is on into temptation, that it would not have the ability to consume us. And then he says, deliver us from the evil one, which is really the same thought. May God's victory overcome all evil. Now, some of you, 
have a passage in your Bible that says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That is not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. As far as we can tell, it was added later by scribes. It's a powerful statement. It's a wonderful uh, benediction of praise. Just as far as we know, it was not in the original text. So here is the order of the prayer. God and his glory first. Our needs, both physical and spiritual, second. But Jesus has one more thing to point out. And that is that we need to pray without hypocrisy. Couldn't get a P in there, I'm sorry. Pray without hypocrisy. Remember that this is the whole context of chapter 6. Hypocrites. And as I was looking at verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, actually I have a slide for this, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. Are you saying if I forget to forgive someone, or I'm unable to forgive someone, or I refuse to forgive someone, that I'm going to hell just because of that? The section here that this passage is in is about true righteousness, not hypocritical righteousness. That's the section. And throughout he's saying, be careful not to be like the hypocrites who do their things before other people to be seen by them because that's all the reward they're going to get. And underneath all of that is they don't understand true righteousness. They've missed the point. All they're going to get is an earthly reward. And he says, don't look for that. Look for a heavenly reward from your father, even if nobody else notices. So here, think about how this applies. He says, righteousness done for people to, for other people to see gains a reward from those people rather than God. It's not truly seeking righteousness. So a prayer for personal forgiveness which is, God, forgive me so that I might be righteous. You see the hypocrisy in it? But I don't care to forgive that guy. That person is a hypocrite. It's all right back into the context of what he's talking about. A personal prayer for forgiveness that focuses on our own personal righteousness but refuses to forgive others demonstrates we don't have a clue what true forgiveness is. We've missed the boat entirely. There's a warning here. There's a challenge here. And I think it starts with going deep into what our own forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. And if we understand that, we should also long for others to have the same thing. If we are forgiven by Christ, we will forgive those who have sinned against us. It's not easy, it's not quick. It doesn't make everything okay that the person did, and it may not restore the relationship. But to say, God, I want them to know the forgiveness that is theirs through Jesus Christ. So how should we pray? Know who we are praying to. Put God's glory first. Then pray for our basic needs, both physical and spiritual. And through it all, know that God already knows what you need. So if you use the wrong words, it's okay. 
It's okay. But also know, pray. Just pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to learn how to pray better. And I believe as we correctly apply this, it should lead to more prayer, not less. And I pray that we would have courage to understand that forgiven through Jesus Christ, we are able to come directly to you. You already know, you're already involved, you know what we will say before we say it. Father, may that free us from any pretense of trying to impress you or impress anyone around us. May it free us from any hypocrisy that so easily creeps in. May it free us to just pray that you are our Father in heaven. We want your will to be done and your glory to be made known in this world. And Father, that we recognize we are sinners. And we thank you for the forgiveness we have through Jesus Christ. And we pray for others in our lives, maybe even those that have hurt us deeply. May they know the forgiveness that they have through Jesus Christ as well. And may we be able to forgive them as you have forgiven us. And Father, may your will be done in this world, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen.